The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, my name is Joni Siegel, and you're watching and listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. I will be your host for today's episode, and this is episode number 140. If you'd like to listen to any of our earlier episodes, you can go to theaddictionpodcast.com, and all of our previous episodes are there. Today, we're going to be talking to a gentleman named Jonathan Goyer. Jonathan Goyer has had a lot of wake-up calls since he started using heroin about 15 years ago. His dad died in 2004 from a heroin overdose, and in 2009, his brother died from one as well. Yet, both deaths did not deter Jonathan with continuing with his own drug habits. After many unsuccessful attempts at rehab treatment, he finally almost died. And then he became clean after that. Now, you may remember, if you've been listening to our podcast regularly, that we interviewed a lady named Alexis Johnson. Alexis was one of the recurring actresses in the TV series, kind of a drama documentary, and it was called 60 Days in Narcoland. Well, Jonathan Goyer actually played her partner in that television program. So without further ado, let's talk to Jonathan Goyer. So Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story because I firmly believe that with all of the different stories that we tell, even though there are a lot of similarities with drug and alcohol addiction, they're also, everybody's an individual. And so what your story is may resonate with someone for whom no other story has resonated. So that's why I, I think it's so important that um, we keep, we continue to share these stories. Absolutely. And not just a story of, um, of addiction, but story of recovery, right? So if we've got, we've got 20. Even more so. Yeah, got, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. If we've, um, yeah, go ahead. So how did you get started on drugs? How, <laughs> I feel like that's a loaded question. Um, I, yeah, and uh, I read it, and I was a little bit appalled, but I thought, okay, I'm not going to say it until you tell me. So, um, so my, uh, I mean, I started very, very young, um, around the age of seven or eight. I had an older brother um, who was uh, seven years older than me, um, and uh, he started experimenting with marijuana as a teenager. And um, at the time, my mother was raising two boys alone. So she, um, she, that, that rendered her oftentimes working, working doubles, working weekends. And, um, so me and my brother, um, or I really rely on him to sort of, uh, you know, keep an eye on me and take care of me and stuff. And unfortunately that's how I got entangled, uh, into using drugs. And as time progressed, um, that, uh, I began to be introduced to other drugs, um, as well, and into my teenage years, and um, ultimately, um, I ended up using with other family members as well, too, uh, and friends, of course. Yeah, I read that you started at age seven, and it definitely gave me a chill because I, my oldest granddaughter, is six and six and a half, and wow, so young. But I can also see that a 14-year-old is not necessarily in the position to make the best choices for his seven-year-old brother. So I can see how that might have happened. Absolutely. So what drugs did you then progress to? Um, well, of course, it 
uh, it originates with the marijuana use and experimenting with alcohol. Um, I, I'm not sure that there's a drug that I haven't done, but um, I, uh, around the age of 16, really, um, I settled into the use, the regular use of cocaine and heroin. Okay. Um, so did you go to college? Uh, I did not at that time. Um, again, uh, you know, being a teenager, um, and this was all sort of fun and games at the time, right? Um, I can say in retrospect, I can pinpoint these pivotal times in my life where it began to revolve around the getting and using of drugs. <clears throat> um, but, uh, it, it, it very, the, my drug use very gradually and very, um, cunningly took over, um, took over my life. And the, the two stories that I can remember, or these two sort of pivotal points that, that stick out to me was, um, uh, one was that I, I always loved camping as a kid, right? I just loved the outdoors. I loved, you know, going to campsites, go, going hiking. And I can remember being uh, 15 or 16 years old and having to decline going on a camping trip with my friends because I knew I would, uh, the fear of running out of drugs out in the wilderness was terrifying to me. Um, so I lost out on that opportunity. And at the time, it didn't mean much to me. But again, in retrospect, that was, that was a really crucial situation where I uh, kind of uh, unknowingly began to exchange uh, drug use over the things that I had loved. So my, my priorities had begun to shift. Right. Um, yep. Did your, was your mother aware of what was going on? Um, being that she was a single mother working as much as she was, I don't think she was aware to the extent of it. Um, I think she always had suspicions, but um, I can imagine that's not anything that, uh, that a mother can come to grips with easily. Um, and she certainly at that point in her life didn't have a supportive network of um, anybody to rely on that had a similar experience, right? Or not at least that anybody was talking about at the time. Right. You know, that's one of the things that we hope with a podcast is to, you know, kind of take away not take away the guilt and the, and, but definitely take away the stigma, but, but get people to a point where if they suspect that a family member is addicted, they check it out or they can do something about it. Well, like, look at the analogy of um, if you have a mother and a son and the son um, develops some, some unfortunate disease of some sort, um, you know, or, 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 or an ailment, whether it's a broken leg or leukemia, all the neighbors and, and uh, family members are going to come over with uh, fruitcake and get well cookies and, and wish them the best. But then when your son goes to detox, there's nobody coming over with cake, <laughs> right? That's nope. right. Nope. When, you, when your son goes to treatment for drug addiction, there, there's nobody coming over to console the family in, this, you know, in the same way that they would any other disease. That's right. That's exactly right. And there is a tendency to want to hide it and be ashamed of it and, you know, not reach out Absol to get 
support and help. Absolutely. You know? And it's, I mean, one of my favorite lines is that um, the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connectedness, right? Ah, so, interesting. so living a life in addiction is a, it's a very, very isolating um, state to live in. And unfortunately, that oftentimes um, pours over to friends and family who have loved ones who are suffering. It can be very, very isolating for them as well, too. That's right. So it's, it's almost funny how they, uh, my mother, who is somebody who's never done a drug, a drink or drug in her whole life, actually very, lived a very similar life to me in, to the extent that she began to suffer the same consequences I was and go through the same emotions that I was going through. Um, so it, it is, it is very unfortunate. Yeah. Now you weren't the only family member that was addicted though. Correct. Um, my, uh, my brother was as well too. And, uh, as was my father who was, uh, uh, an alcoholic, uh, and, uh, struggled with drug use as well too. And, uh, and I was born in 1987, give the listeners some perspective here so i'm 32 years old now um at the uh in 2004 at the age of 17 i lost my father to a, a fatal heroin overdose and in 2009 at the age of 22 uh, my brother passed away from complications of drug use as well i'm sorry it's i appreciate that it's um so it's something that's a uh, very very uh relevant in my life and in my family's life as well too um and in 2013 um just four years after my brother i actually experienced a, a very serious um overdose as well too but my life was saved with narcan um and fortunately i've been able to turn my life around from that um, as i'm sitting here with uh, six years in recovery very well done that's a huge accomplishment definitely can you tell me what led to the overdose? Um, my overdose. So it was, um, yeah, I, I had begun, uh, to become entangled in the, uh, in the judicial system, uh, throughout my active addiction. Um, at, at my worst state, um, I was, I was homeless, um, unemployable, uh, about, somewhere to the tune of 40 plus thousand dollars in debt. Um, and really, uh, you know, it's funny. I, when you hear about people in active addiction and, and it's easy for one to speculate what that might be, or certainly, uh, offer suggestions on how somebody should get better. Um, you know, when I was living in that existence, I was, and I say existence because it, it was not, uh, it was no life to be had. Um, I was, I was just waiting to die. I had accepted the fact that I was going to die. And I, I actually almost embraced that, right? Where I was just waiting for the day. I, I had accepted it as, as fact to be, and I was merely just existing until that occurrence happened. Um, so meanwhile, of course, um, getting entangled with the judicial system and, um, Ultimately, I, I was arrested, uh, and I served some time in prison. And when I got out of prison, I was given the opportunity, or, well, the mandated requirement, I should say, to go to long-term residential treatment, which was a 90-day facility 
um, which was really great um, for me to really build a foundation in recovery. Um, and uh, after graduating that facility, I actually went to go live in a recovery house. Um, and what happened in that time of being in the recovery house, I began to look for a job and, you know, try to start piecing my life together again. Um, and I don't think people really realize how hard emotionally that can be. Um, because when you're, when you're using drugs you're, or alcohol, you're obviously not making the best decisions. And, right. um, and, and during that time, there are often times where you're either robbing, cheating, or stealing. Um, you know, you're, <laughs> to, to say the least, you're not your best self. And, right. <laughs> and, you know, you make a lot of decisions that, that you regret. Um, now, it's really easy when you're consuming drugs and alcohol on a daily basis to help you forget all of that, all of those shameful behaviors that you've done, um, all of that debt that you might be in, all of those decisions that you made, all those people that you hurt. Um, and then you come into recovery and you've got to face all of that. You've got, to, right. you've got to live with yourself, sober-minded, and really take a glaring look at all of that stuff that you've done and own it. Um, and that can, be, that can be an overwhelming experience for somebody. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, you've got to go out and find a job and, <laughs> you know, and, and all, all this other yep. regular life stuff, you know. Yep. And uh, I was becoming very overwhelmed as I couldn't find a job given my felony record. Um, that, uh, one day I, I just threw in the towel about two months into living in that recovery house. I just, I threw in the towel and, um, I just, I, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't do it anymore. I felt like the world was against me. Um, and that I just didn't have the strength to, to move on. So what happened in that moment was I, um, I ended up purchasing heroin and this was on June 16th of 2013. And I went home to my recovery house. No, uh, there wasn't anybody around at the time. And I, um, shame on me, but I proceeded to get high in the house. Um, now I say shame on me, but thank God I was in a recovery house because um, moments later, and I don't know exactly how much time, but somebody came home and went to check on me and found me uh, face down on the floor overdosed. Um, and very fortunately for me, all the residents of those, uh, of that house were trained in how to appropriately respond to an overdose and how to administer Narcan. And my mm -hmm. life was saved by the residents in that very house. Wow. Now, Jonathan, you, you did other treatment programs, right? I have between the ages of 17 and 25, uh, I had been to about, I lost, I lost count, but to the best of my recollection, about 38 different tre oh treatment admissions. Now that ranges from anything from, uh, go, you know, going into uh, a detox facility and maybe only staying for a day and then leaving um, up to perhaps getting one or two months in, in sobriety and, and having a reoccurrence uh, of use or relapse. Um, so yes, this was definitely not my first my first time. Right, you know, I, I'm I just 
just as an observer, it would make sense to me that when you go through that many attempts at rehab, I can sort of see how it, you might get to the point where you just can't, it's something you just can't fix. Do you know what I mean? I just, the, um, the gentleman who used to talk on the podcast with me, I mean, he got to the point where the treatment centers basically told him he was a throwaway addict. Yeah. He was yep. never going to get better. Yeah. And that's, it's just, that's such a horrific position to be in or, or a horrific mindset to think that you're just never going to get better. Absolutely. And, um, fortunately I can say for me that when I would enter into a treatment facility again, oftentimes the same one, or I had a good rotation going, so I wouldn't piss off anyone particularly. <laughs> right. So, yeah, right. You know, kind of, um, but I, you know, my, and I know this might not be for everybody, but my personal story is that when I walked into the door, I was met with compassion and empathy for whoever was doing that intake. And, um, and I, I believe that that really, um, that really helped me because if I didn't believe that I could get better, they believed that I could get better. And it was individuals like that, that are working on the front lines that really loved me until I can learn to love myself. And if that took 10 years and that took 10 years, but, but here I am, you know, here I am doing it. So it's certainly, uh, certainly kudos to, to all their efforts over the years. Well, I, I kudos to all their efforts. And I think also kudos to you. And, you know, this is, this is one of the points I like to make for the people who listen. If you've done, you know, two, three, four treatment programs and it, quote, hasn't worked, unquote, there are other options out there. There are, and, there are many, you know, many, many pathways, yes. And the, and the thing is to just not give up, to not get to that mindset where I don't matter, I can't get better anyway, might as well end it all because that's, you know, that's where we don't want you to go. That's where we don't want anybody to go and we don't want families to experience you know, the loss of loved ones because of that. I mean, you, you lost two of your immediate family members to overdoses. Absolutely. And, you know. Well, an another thing too is um, having been in recovery now for the years that I have and having watched people come into recovery and then leave or relapse and come back into recovery. I mean, I've known people that had seven years sober and relapsed and came back and their first three months back was a better quality living than the seven years was previously. So, you know, let's, let that be a, a lesson to individuals that maybe, you know, maybe they have 30 days uh, in recovery and they relapse or a year or two years. Um, that, you know, we're, what, we're, what, what I strive for is quality of life, you know, and, and, and if, if you lost time, although that can be devastating, um, most of the devastation associated with that is actually our disease of addiction convincing us that we're no good because we relapse. But the, right. re the reality is, is that we can pick up any time and, and, and proceed with a life in recovery of better quality than we've ever lived before. That's right. That's exactly right. And that ha message has to be reiterated for, you know, not only for people who are you know, using now or have used and relapsed, but also for their family members. Because I think, you know, one of the things we've talked about on the podcast is that, you know, 
is a lot of times family members and friends, they don't understand why you can't just stop. Yeah. You know, or they don't understand how come you relapsed. You were doing so well. Or, or, or why you have to go to those meetings every day or, yeah. you know, or anything, you know, or anything like that. And, and it's funny because a lot of family members will uh, approach me and say, how can they support, you know, a loved one? And, um, you know, it's, it's funny, like my mother, when I was in treatment, my mother supported me by like bringing me cigarettes in treatment, right? Like that was like, you know, demand I put on her in, you know, in contingency of me staying in treatment. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's classic, classic addict uh, mentality. But, um, but, but really, though, to, um, to be a part of your family members, recovery is huge. I mean, when somebody gets 30 days free from drugs and alcohol. I mean, that is against all odds. That is a miracle. Um, and that was a tremendous amount of work. So to, to, to set those milestones and celebrate them, um, much as you would a birthday, for example, right? Somebody, you know, if your cousin or neighbor or coworker gets, you know, a year uh, clean and sober in sobriety and recovery, celebrate with them, acknowledge that and, yep. you know, and pat them on the back, you know, it's, um, yep that that's something that we can do, you know, it just the acknowledgement and celebration of it goes, goes a long way. Yep, exactly. So can you talk a little bit about 60 days in Narcoland? You know, we had Alexis Johnson on the podcast Yep, and um, she talked a little bit about it, but can you talk a little bit about that experience? Um, sure. So, um, well, first of all, it wasn't anything that I sought, uh, you know, that I sought out to do. Um, actually, <laughs> you want to hear a funny story? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I got a call from these, in, uh, these people, uh, last year, they said, Oh, we have a, a project we think you might be interested in now. Um, over the years I've done, um, a lot of different various consulting work for, for agencies and stuff like that, as it pertains to the addiction epidemic and, uh, increasing resources and increasing access to treatment and recovery for individuals. So, and I've had my share of, uh, of media campaigns and, and marketing work around, around recovery. So I said, yeah, sure. So they started telling me about this um, kind of docu-series that they want to do. And I said, yeah, that, that, that sounds interesting. And they're asking my input, how, you know, how do I think it would look or what would work, what wouldn't work, or just asking me questions, kind of using me as a resource, right? So I right. said, yeah, that's great. So we set up a Skype interview and that goes well. And so here I am, I'm assuming that they're looking to hire me as a consultant on their documentary project. Because <laughs> there, there's no, there's no, nothing to say it shouldn't. It's, it's talking very conceptually, very theoretically, you know. And uh, so they say, uh, you know, I, I, we, we really like you. We want you to come down to New York. So I live in Rhode Island. So, so one day I drive down to New York and, you know, I get, I, I'm looking decent anyway, right? Nice suit and tie and, <laughs> And I walk into this room and it's like this boardroom of like these, you know, TV executives. And uh, I sit down and a guy goes, so why should we let you on our TV show? <laughs> and I said, I, I don't want to be on your TV show. You shouldn't? <laughs> I, said, I, said, I, don't, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, I never, I don't want to be on your, you know, that's, I don't want to be on your TV show. And one of the guys <laughs> leaned over and they said, oh, we got to get this guy. This guy, this guy would be perfect. You know, and uh, <laughs> so long story short, I, I, uh, I signed up for something um, that I was uh, not uh, fully aware of what it was. And uh, yeah, I said, well, you know, my uh, I've always been uh, my, my theory since I've 
recovered from my overdose and proceeded my life in recovery. My understanding of it, um, my spiritual understanding of it, is that my, my life was saved. Um, I shouldn't be here. I should be dead or in jail 38 times over. But I'm not. I'm here. And it's my job. Uh, with that comes a duty and a responsibility to uh, share my story with other people and help other individuals to find recovery. So if the platform for that possibility was on A&E, then that's where I was going. There you go. You're the reluctant TV yeah. star. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was, um, and it's so it's interesting. So I'm, I won't get into too much of the uh, details. I know everybody's interested in how 60 Days In operates and all of that. Um, but there were really, uh, there were three things going on during the filming of this show. For me, here's my experience. I had my regular life. I'm Jonathan Goyer. I'm from Rhode Island. I, you know, I work here. My friends are these people. My family are these people. And I'm still myself, right? So I'm, as I get shipped off to Kentucky, um, I'm trying to remain in contact with, with my regular life, right? Part two is that I'm supposed to make this TV show. So now I'm a, you know, so now I'm Jonathan, the advocate from Rhode Island, who's on this Narcoland TV show. And then part three was, you know, those cameras weren't going 24-7. Part three was, I'm, you know, I'm some combination of the two where, you know, I'm Jonathan Goyer from Rhode Island here to do a TV show, but I'm still living a real, very real life in Kentucky. Um, You know, when I, you know, go to the gas station in the morning and have the small talk with the cashier, like that's very real. It has nothing to do with my life in Rhode Island. It has nothing to do with the TV show, but it's a real life that I'm, that I'm living in this moment in time. Um, So it was a, it was very, uh, it was very, very interesting to me. Um, My, uh, my. Uh, contribution towards the show, I made it very known that my my interest was in to uh, really survey the the landscape of Kentucky um, uh-huh. and meet individuals that were impacted by by addiction and try to offer them help so that that was what I agreed to do and that's what I stuck to that's awesome. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-314. 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, 
has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. You got a couple of people into treatment, didn't you? Um, I did, yeah, into um, a, a type of treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there were two individuals, Mike and Kristen, that were on the show um, that I spent a lot of time with. And, and actually, there were, there were tons of Mike and Kristens out there um, mm-hmm. that I had interacted with um, and ton of really great people that I met. Uh, it was unfortunate to me that the television series decided to not go as down far down the path that I went with it. Um, and rather to just highlight that one individual story of those two. But, um, I spent my time volunteering at a homeless shelter. Um, that was just really, really fantastic. Um, and, uh, yeah, the people I met, uh, most of them were striving to be in recovery. What blew my mind. Um, I think it was actually Kristen though, that said it. When I, uh, when the staff at the shelter introduced me as like the new volunteer, everybody was a little skeptical, right? And I, uh, uh-huh. I have there's this video on YouTube of me getting arrested, and it was a police chase, and it's this kind of horrific scene. But it shows me all strung out in a courtroom in front of a judge, my face all bloodied, and you know it's 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 this horrific video. But I but I showed all the people at the shelter that were staying in the shelter that video. And I said, that was me. That was me five years ago. That was me six years ago. Um, and now I'm in recovery, right? Yep. And yep. it blew their mind from that. Like it gained their trust immediately. Um, kind of like the street cred, if you will, you know? And um, okay. okay, so I have to stop you for a second. How did this video get out there? I mean, who uh, videoed it, you? I, I was like the news. It's like the, the six o'clock oh, news. Um, okay. You know, and by the way, my life at that moment in time was so horrible that when I appeared on the six o'clock news, you know, half dead presented in front of a judge and my mom was sitting home watching the news. Oh, she, no. she, she had a sigh of relief because she knew her son was alive. Ah, okay. I get that. Right. So that, that's yeah. how bad, that's how sort of 360 I, I, my life had become at that point in time where just the fact that I was alive and, and perhaps had, a, had another chance was, um, you know, was, was relieving. Um, but of course, not, not something people would typically want to see. Um, but anyway, back to the shelter. So, um, so when I said that I was a person in recovery, um, Kristen had said to me, what do you mean recovery? What does that mean? Well, it means I haven't done drugs and alcohol for, you know, for five years at that time. Um, And she looked at me and she looks back at, you know, the the picture of me on the video and looks back at me. And she said, I never met anyone in recovery before. Wow. And that blew my mind. And and I, I suddenly understood what some of the problems in other parts of the country, what, what those areas are facing. Yeah. Right. Because I did not wake up at the age of 25 or 26 and intuitively know how to recover from addiction. I had to be surrounded by people who had firsthand experience 
in, re in recovering and sh take me by the arm and show me how to live life in recovery. I, I would not have been able to do that on my own. And the fact that somebody would expect me to inherently understand how to do that on my own is an absurd request. Um, right. I didn't know how to, I didn't wake up at the age of 15 and know how to stick a needle in my arm. Somebody showed right. me how to do that, you know? So, yep. so it, the same goes for recovery. Um, so when Kristen had said that to me, I said, wow, like how can we as members of the community, the general public, like expect somebody like her to get well when she has never met anybody who's been able to get well before. Right. Um, that's heavy duty. Yeah. It, it that's, just a, that's just a heavy duty concept that she'd never met anybody in recovery. You know, from that viewpoint, then I guess, you know, being addicted just meant eventually you overdosed and you died. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, wow. and I mean, the aspirations are low in that area anyway, given the socioeconomic statuses and, and, and all of that, and, you know, combined. Um, it's, you know, the standard of living is not um, what it is in other parts of the country. Um, right. So, but it was interesting too, because some people in the shelter, they hadn't used, like one guy, for example, hadn't used crystal meth in nine days since he had moved into that shelter. Um, okay. And uh, so he goes, so I'm in recovery? I said, yeah, you're damn right you're in recovery, you know? Like, Heck yeah. Yeah, like you got nine days in recovery. Like, but nobody was telling him that. Like nobody wow. was acknowledging it. Oh. Nobody was celebrating it. They couldn't even identify it. They didn't even know the word recovery in the context that you and I are talking right now. Wow. Um, wow. So it was like, you know, I, I, so I had my work cut out for me. To, <laughs> yeah. To say, yeah. I can see that. To, to say the least. But it was, um, it was just really, really great to be able to spend time with, with the guys and girls there and, um, and, kind of, uh, and kind of show them what this recovery thing is all about and show them uh, that they can live a, a better way of life. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was so, so the whole show was a really, um, it was a really, really incredible experience for me, especially that I never spent time in that part of the country. So it was just, Kentucky is a very beautiful state. And uh, yeah. so just the, the, the whole experience to me, I can remember driving home from the trip um, and I was there about, uh, I was uh, there over a little over 60 days, but I can remember driving home and just having this unbelievable capacity, this newfound level of gratitude, um, that I had didn't ever think was possible to, to obtain. Um, and, and, and the gratitude was for, uh, understanding and, and acknowledging that, that what I had available to me when I got into recovery here in Rhode Island um, and just, you know, because uh, people just don't have it. Like they right. just don't have access. They don't have access to not only the, the treatment medical resources required to detox off certain substances, but also the community of people in recovery. Um, so yeah, I just, I left there feeling more grateful um, and really not even, not even giving, not giving a damn about what the show is going to produce because I know that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I left, yeah. I left yeah, there yeah, with yeah. like a new foundation in life, you know? And uh, exactly. Yeah. So tell us, tell all the listeners what you are doing now. Um, so I do, I wear as many hats as I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you got to wear a lot of hats to get a lot of things done. 
Um, back about five years ago, uh, our governor of Rhode Island, Governor Gina Raimondo, made a, um, an executive order to form a task force specifically to overdose prevention work. Um, and I was honored to be chosen one of, as one of five expert advisors to the development and implementation of a strategic plan for the state of Rhode Island. So wow. I've, I've, always been, um, I've always been involved on that level here in Rhode Island. So I, always, I am always doing that, um, uh, working with the different state departments to uh, um, whether it's coming up with ideas for new grants or helping to implement existing grant monies. Um, and uh, it's really great. We've got a really, really great task force that consists of uh, law, lawmakers, uh, police, fire, um, treatment providers, insurance commissioners, uh, just everybody you can imagine. And most importantly, I feel people that are in recovery actually right. sit on this task force. Um, so there's 50 members right now and the meetings are very well attended. So, um, so, so I, you know, that's what I do in my, in my spare time. Um, okay. But uh, <laughs> My other two roles are one is working with certified peer recovery specialists. Um, uh, a term also people might be familiar with is a peer recovery coach. Um, so okay. in, in Rhode Island, we have a very um, comprehensive uh, approach to utilizing people who have lived experience um, as key players in this, as we address this addiction epidemic, and I always say addiction epidemic because we're not experiencing an opioid overdose crisis. It's an addiction epidemic of colossal you are, proportion. You are correct. That's um, a better way to term it. Absolutely. And it, uh, so, um, so working with uh, individuals who um, have some time in recovery, um, uh, initially about a year and a half to two years, what happens is if somebody's interested in beginning to work in this field and helping people to get into treatment or navigate the, the recovery um, life, um, we have training programs to get people actually uh, established as uh, certified peer recovery specialists. Now, what that looks like here is that they volunteer or work for 500 hours um, uh, across a spectrum of different domains so that they're getting a kind of robust experience um, with, this, with this sector. And um, uh, from there, they can actually sit down and take a state exam and become state certified uh, to, to uh, provide peer recovery uh, services. And that is actually uh, reimbursable by Medicaid in Rhode Island as well, too, which helps keep a lot of our programming sustainable. Um, so the ways in which we now a peer recovery coach, uh, it, it's not a new concept, but the ways in which we use them here in Rhode Island are much different where we're, uh, we were the first state to implement them within the emergency room department. So if you uh, overdose in Rhode Island and you're brought to one of our 13 hospitals, within 30 minutes, there's a certified peer recovery specialist sitting by your bedside, um, you know, explaining to you that they're not alone and that that they also had experienced that and they, they, they've been through what they're going through, but they found a way out and here's how they did it. Right. So, wow. so, uh, so that's a really great program that we've got in Rhode Island. We also have a lot of mobile outreach um, efforts happening too, where teams of peer recovery specialists are going out into the streets and engaging uh, with individuals that are homeless or just around the community. Um, and uh, with that too, we do a lot of, uh, links to, to treatment, uh, a lot of referrals to treatment, and uh, a lot of Narcan distribution. We found that when we 
put our peers, um, when we give them uh, the resources to distribute Narcan, people are much more receptive to receiving it. So about 35 to 40% of Rhode Island's total Narcan supply, and Narcan, by the way, is the medication used to reverse an opioid overdose. Right. Um, uh, about 40, 35 to 40% of the Narcan is distributed by peers here in Rhode Island. Um, and it's, wow. really, it's really, really great because when you're walking down the street and you see somebody who appears to be homeless, um, and it's funny too because people ask me, well, how do you know? How do you know who to approach? It's like, well, when you live the life, you just know. So, right. so, <laughs> so just, uh, we just approach people and uh, initiate a conversation. And a lot of people aren't ready for recovery. Um, they're not right. ready to to drop their their lives and go to treatment. And that's okay. But we found that a lot of them are very willing to take a, a kit of Narcan and, and learn how to use it. Um, so they're very, very receptive to that. So we've begun to use interesting. the... We've begun that's, to... Well, it's, That's interesting, Jonathan. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about that. And that's interesting where I'm not ready to go into recovery, but I would be willing to help others if they need it. Absolutely. And it, so, so this is kind of along the, the, the lines of a harm reduction approach. So a job of a peer recovery coach is not to tell somebody what they should do and how they should do it. The job is to just connect with them, right? That's what I right. told all my employees. Your, yeah. your job is to not get everybody clean and sober. Your job is to get your phone number in the pocket of everybody who's struggling with addiction and have enough right. of a relationship with them that they're willing to call you when they're ready. And the Narcan has been a really great engagement tool to do that. So it, so it leaves us having real conversations with people where it's like, okay, man, like you're not ready to go to treatment. That's cool. I understand that. It took me four years to decide to go to treatment. So I totally understand. Um, so let's, let's have a realistic conversation right now then. Let's have a realistic conversation about Narcan and, and the role that you can play in preventing uh, you know, a friend from overdosing. And when you take that approach, people become more receptive. People become more comfortable with you. And you begin to build that rapport with individuals so that when the time is ready, they feel more comfortable. The door is open and they can yep. access you at that time. So we've had, I mean, I have literally had people that, that, that called me that I don't even remember, right? They're, oh, we <laughs> you know, and it was like a guy from two or three years earlier who kept my number scrunched up in his wallet you know, and he held on to it for two or three years, but he knew that it was there and he felt comfortable with me enough to use it when he was ready. So that's, I yeah. feel like some of the best work that we can do is really just be there for individuals and have a, have a build a relationship with individuals, even if they're not willing to uh, enter into treatment at that given moment. I think that's huge. I, I think that's huge. I have a question, Jonathan. Is this um, certified peer recovery specialist? Is that a program that's available in other states besides Rhode Island? There are so there are, there are there are multiple states that actually use that exact same curriculum and certification. Uh, I want to okay. say between seventeen and twenty of the states actually specifically use the CPRS certified peer recovery specialist okay. Um, okay. certification uh, within within their. Um, within their state. It's just, uh, it's a matter of my interest in it is being more innovative and saying, okay, so we've got the peers, how do we use them? Um, we've also got a program in Rhode Island that we modeled after New Hampshire, that's safe station. So every fire station in the capital city of Providence, Rhode Island is open 24 seven. So that somebody can walk into the fire station, ask for help with their addiction. And it's an, it's an anonymous private, um, 
private uh, kind of entryway program, if you will. And within 15 minutes, you've got two certified peer recovery specialists there uh, ready to take you to treatment or, or at minimal present you a list of realistic options that you have for your life in that moment. Um, so wow. again, when we got the peers partnering with, uh, with firefighters, we've also got peers partnering with our state police as well too, and partnering with doctors and treatment centers and uh, of course uh, recovery community centers um, to really work alongside um, professionals and and parallel to what's happening there as well too is that like these firefighters for example they get they have to see the nitty-gritty of it all day long god right. bless right. our first responders right yeah and they they don't get to see the recovery of it right they never get to see recovery <laughs> they just see devastation and overdose like you know every hour you know it's that's right it's horrendous so when we have certified peer recovery specialists working with the fire fighters, they get to see what recovery actually looks like. They get to hear these stories of people in recovery and begin to understand what that actually is. And again, much like Kristen at the shelter, begin to you know, see it and begin to actually believe that recovery is possible. And by incident, the firefighters end up becoming recovery advocates. And the way that they, the dialogue that they have with individuals begins to change over time. And yep. they begin promoting recovery. Yep. I think that's huge. I think that's absolutely huge. Yeah. Um, I, how, if people wanted to find out more about your organization or the organization you work with, how do they do that? Yep. Where do they so, go? So my, uh, my, the other hat that I wear, um, I'm always switching hats. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, is a, I'm uh, the CEO of an organization called Access to Recovery. Um, so they can certainly reach out to me there. Access to Recovery was formulated uh, about two years ago, and it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization that really addresses the gaps in the community as they arise. Because unfortunately, what happens, so we've got tons of federal funding right now uh, going towards this, uh, they call it the opioid crisis, I call it the addiction right. epidemic, the, um, right. uh, tons of funding. But what happens is, uh, that's great, we get programs funded and started, um, but then all, there are other times where programs um, become defunded um, as well, too. So as although we're pouring resources into the sector, it oftentimes does create incidental gaps in the community. Um, so access to recovery is really there to help uh, identify uh, and work with state partners um, and fill the gaps on a, on a community based level. So we offer a lot of scholarship funding to recovery houses. Um, and things like that. Um, we're actually getting our first um, uh, Oxford recovery house going in the state of Rhode Island, which is really, really exciting. Oxford House is a type of recovery house. It's been around for 44 years uh, and okay. exists in 48 other states. So it's really, really exciting to have Rhode Island finally come on board for that. Um, and uh, they can certainly, uh, so people can reach out to me there. Um, the web is, it, is it access to recovery.org? Uh, so it's actually atrecovery.org. So uh, at recovery.org, www.recovery.org. Yep. Okay. A-T-R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y uh, .org. Uh, we're also on Facebook as well too, for whatever that's worth. Perfect. So the way I like to end these conversations and I, I love your story and I can see that through everything you do, you're giving a lot of hope to people and that's what we try to do with the podcast. But if you had just one last message to say to all our listeners, be they friends and family of addicts, um, addicts in recovery, addicts not yet in recovery, what would you say? 
Oh boy. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, obviously the, the generic answer of like recovery is possible. Right. But I feel like that's a little bit played out. Um, you know, for, for people that are experiencing um, having a loved one struggle with addiction, um, it's hard. It's, it's totally hard. Um, but know that, that you're not alone in that struggle and that there that's are right. resources available for you too. I mean, a classic like Al-Anon, Naranon, there, you know, there are support groups um, for, for, for parents and friends and loved ones who, who, are, who are carrying this burden as well too. And that might sound like, well, why should I have to go to a support group? But um, it's not that you have to go, it's that you get to go, you know, yeah. and, um, and it's, uh, you know, much like my life in recovery, I need to be around like-minded individuals in order for me to recover. And uh, there are tons of family members out there who have struggled for years and years, if not decades with their loved ones, and then saw those individuals finally get better. Um, yep. So those, it's really important to keep yourself well during the time that somebody else is not right. So I'm, I'll share this quick story with you. This is a, this is going to be a five minute wrap up. I'm turning this into, <laughs> but, okay. um, but I've, I've, I literally, there was a mother that I knew who's uh, used to call me all the time. Her son was downtown getting high and uh, she called me frantically multiple times a day. And I said, Oh, I mean, I'll look for him when I'm down there, but I, you know, I'm not a miracle worker, you know? And uh, but she would go down there and, oh, my God, I could just hear it in her voice. And I could see it in her actions. She was going down there every day to try to find him. She'd find him. She'd give him money. She'd give him food. She just cared so much about him and she just wanted him to be okay. Now, meanwhile, she starts going to work late, leaving early, taking an extra long lunch break, um, taking money out of accounts that she shouldn't be taking out of, you know, out of her, her, her accounts to, to, yeah. to support him. and. So fast forward like nine months later, the kid just decides to get clean one day and goes to treatment, right? By the, t- mm-hmm. you know, by, the, you know, some divine intervention beyond anything that you or I could do. And right. now he's sitting in treatment with a few days sober. He's in better shape than the mother is in as she yep. got fired from her job. She remortgaged oh. her house. And oh. it's like, we need to make sure that we're, keeping ourselves well so that we can be there for our loved ones when they are ready to get help. Because if we're not, if we're not taking care of ourselves, we're not, we're not going to be able to be there for them. That's a, that's a brilliant point. Brilliant. Um, And as far as individuals that are struggling with addiction or that are new in recovery, um, you know, we've got more, We've got more of a handle on this than we think that we do. And it really, it's amazing to me. I've seen it in my personal life and other people's lives. When we can put down drugs and alcohol and just make like two or three consecutively good decisions, how much better our life can get. Um, And if you're new in recovery and you're feeling overwhelmed, much as I was right prior to my uh, overdosing relapse, you know, it's okay. I didn't have my driver's license back until I was three years in recovery. Like wow. I, I had to pay, you know, reinstatement fees and all of this, you know, all, all this money and all this time. And um, like, it's okay. Things come over time. Um, but I will say, you know, seven years into it, this is a life I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, right. and, I, and I understand now because I kept kept the faith that my life was going to be okay. And I kept myself surrounded by a strong network of people in recovery that when things happen, although I might perceive them to be bad, 
bad news at that given moment, that, it, that it's not. That in retrospect, I can say, oh, wow, that's why that happened that way. Because if this didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened and I wouldn't be where I am today. So it's right. um, to really take, take the news as news and not label it good or bad and just take the next step and do the next right thing. And it's amazing um, what the universe has in store for us. Yep. That's awesome. Jonathan, once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for sharing your story with us. Anytime. I hope you enjoyed Jonathan's interview. I think his story is quite riveting. Um, He definitely tried rehab more times than anybody else we've spoken to on the podcast. So that was pretty amazing. Before I end off, I wanted to share something with you. Back in August, we interviewed a mom named Erin Miller, and Erin's story was one about her son, who was a promising young hockey player with quite the career in his future, and he became addicted to drugs and died of a heroin overdose. Erin reached out to us recently because she wrote a book called Miller Strong, and her book is going to be available By the time you listen to this podcast, you should be able to find it on Amazon, or you can go to www.millerstrongbook.com. We are right before the holidays, and once again, I'm going to give you the pitch to please get your loved one into treatment, or if you yourself are an addict, get into treatment, do it now. The holidays are such a stressful time and can bring up all sorts of emotions that can be hard to handle. So please get your loved ones into treatment and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.